the reading of God's uh, word, the sermon text. Uh, if you're tired, feel free to sit down, but otherwise, uh, let's remain standing as an expression of our reverence for God's word. First Timothy chapter 1, um, reading verses 18 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. It has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. It is without error in the original languages in which it was given to us, and it remains to us in faithful translations of the original, the authoritative word of God. Listen as I read. 1 Timothy 1.18 This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Pray with me one more time, please. Ask for God's blessing on the message. <clears throat> o Lord, we rejoice that you are a speaking God, uh, that uh, you speak preeminently through uh, the second person of the Godhead, who is the Word fleshed the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you wrote this Bible uh, from which I am preaching and that you speak through that when it is read, but Lord, that you also have willed to speak through um, sinful, albeit forgiven, instruments of your choosing, uh, namely uh, uh, elders, and you choose to speak through us uh, in the preaching of the word. Um, Would you please speak through me? I don't deserve to be used this way, but we ask that you would use me, uh, not for my sake, but for the sake of all these, uh, of your people who are gathered, and also for your glory, Lord Jesus. Would you be our preacher this morning, and uh, use your word uh, to work uh, good, greater good in our hearts, and to reflect your glory back to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um... I think most of you young children know that, generally speaking, fighting is not a good thing, right? It's not a good idea to fight with somebody else, right? Uh, I think we can all agree with that, that uh, uh, the Lord doesn't want us to be fighters. Um, You shouldn't slug your brother or your sister. Or your next-door neighbor. Or anybody. It's... Almost always that's going to be an evil thing that you're doing if you hit somebody else. Um, or even fight with words, uh, other people. In a, in a, that's usually wrong, too. But kids, the fact of the matter is, not all fighting is wrong. In fact, in this passage, uh, Timothy, and through Timothy, we who are Christians, are actually instructed by God to fight. Now, it's a different kind of fighting than slugging your brother or your sister. Um, but it is a fighting of sorts. Uh, it's a striving inside to do something that's hard to do. 
I'll give you an example of when you need to fight. This isn't a spiritual example right now, but uh, this is a, um, it's an example that hopefully you can relate to. Uh, some of you uh, sometimes go uh, walking in the woods, I would imagine. You've done this before, probably with your parents. And um, I used to do that a lot when I was a kid. And I remember there were times where there, uh, we'd walk in this place called the gully. Uh, and uh, it was a big wooded area. And in that wooded area were a couple of streams. And the streams would had cut down into the soil Oh, probably about uh, six or seven feet. And so uh, the stream was down in this, as a lot of streams around here are, is below the ground level where you were standing. And occasionally there would be a log that would be have fallen across that stream. And I would uh, regularly, along with my brother or my, my friends that I would do this with, would, would walk across that log. But sometimes it was pretty, the log wasn't very big. And uh, I'd have to walk like, 10 or 15 feet sometimes to get across that that uh, place where the, str- the stream was running through. And uh, if you fell off the log, you'd get hurt or wet. Probably more the li- likely the latter. But there's a case where if you're walking across the log, you're fighting to maintain your balance so you don't fall off and you want to maintain your balance. And that's that's actually kind of a fight sometimes to train yourself to walk carefully and walk where it's not slippery and uh, in the center of the log and not off to the side and all that kind of stuff. That's a fight of sorts. There are other things in which we are to fight. Uh, but as I say, this passage that we're looking at this morning is a spiritual fight. And it's a fight that Timothy, through the Apostle Paul, was called to wage. He was called to fight. And you and I are called as well to do the exact same thing. I say the exact same thing. Uh, Timothy's circumstances were a little bit unique because he was a pastor, uh, and so y'all are not all pastors. This applies in some sense a little bit more to me than it does to you the, in terms of what was said to Timothy, part of it. But at any rate, there's a lot of overlap, as you'll see as we go through and uh, analyze this passage. Um, just remind you of uh, the background uh, here, or some of the what this letter is about. It is a letter. It was written uh, by the Apostle Paul, undoubtedly, somewhere between 61 A.D. and 67 A.D. And uh, Paul is writing to Timothy uh, as a fellow worker, co-worker, if you will. He was a fellow pastor. Paul was an apostle. Timothy was not. But they were both pastors. And Paul, uh, as Timothy's um, mentor, if you can put it that way, is writing to Timothy, and also as his authority figure, as an apostle, he's writing to him to instruct him concerning his duties as a pastor uh, among the flock there that he's shepherding in the city of Ephesus. Uh, My wife and I just ate at a restaurant last night uh, uh, down in Katy that was called Ephesus. Anyway, owned by a Turkish guy. But uh, (laughs) at any rate, interesting. So, Paul is writing to Timothy, telling him, you need to do certain things in this letter. And one of the main things that he's addressing is the fact that there were false teachers in and around Ephesus who were fomenting trouble amongst the believing flock there. And Paul is concerned about that, and he's directing Timothy through this letter to tackle this problem of false teaching and false teachers head on. That brings me to the passage we're looking at today. Only three verses, but uh, it... it, uh, 
constitutes a preaching unit, if you will. And so that's what we're going to work from. Two main points today. First, we're going to look at the importance of fighting the good fight. And then, toward the end of the sermon, we're going to look at the perils of not fighting the good fight. So first, the importance of fighting the good fight. Paul here, in verse 18, says, This command, this command, I entrust to you. Now, what is he talking about when he says this command? Well, what he is doing here, he's actually referring back to something he said earlier in the chapter. He's referring back to um, verses 3 through 5 in particular. And the fact that he is actually doing that, that that's the, the this command that he's referring to, is evident from the fact that the word here, translated as command, in my version, uh, my translation, it might be translated as charge in your uh in your uh, translation, depends, and there might be a few other uh, possible translations as well, but it's it's uh, command in my version. That word there in verse 18 is the same word in the Greek that Paul uses back in verse 3, when he there wrote that you may command, charge, instruct certain men not to teach false teachings. It's the same word. It's also the same word that Paul uses again in verse 5 of the first chapter when he wrote that, quote, the goal of our commandment, actually it's a cognate of the word that he uses in verse 18, uh, uh, the goal of our commandment or our charge or our instruction is love. And so when he speaks of command here in verse 18, he's thinking back on what he said in verses uh, 3 through 5. So here, then, what he's doing is he's reminding Timothy, uh, as a pastor, reminding him once again of his duty. And what's the duty? The duty, the particular duty that Timothy has, is to silence the false teachers uh, there in and around the believing community, who appear, by the way, to have been uh, leaders in the church at one point, but now Paul regards them as false teachers, but they were actually probably leaders in the church. Uh, there's another passage that indicates that uh, uh, that that may well be the case. But now, Paul, uh, Timothy needs to silence these guys whose speculations about the Mosaic Law were apparently diverting God's people's attention away from the gospel message itself. It was, uh, it was distracting people from what was really important in terms of what they believed and what they focused on in terms of their, uh, the, their beliefs. These men, these false teachers, um, like the Judaizers in Galatia, apparently professed to be Christians. Again, they were probably leaders in the church at one point. So they professed to be Christians. But unlike the Judaizers in Galatia, the teachings of these men whom Timothy has to contend with were not a direct attack on the gospel itself, unlike Galatia, where it was a direct attack. They, there, they were saying, you are made right with God. You are, in effect, justified by faith plus works which is a false gospel, if ever there was one. Um, and uh, and uh, that's what was going on in Galatia. It's not quite what was going on here in, in Ephesus. Now, what these men were apparently doing, among other things, was speculating, or it's a little reading between the lines here, but not much, speculating about genealogies found in the Mosaic Law and using those genealogies found in Genesis and elsewhere uh, and perhaps some other material they were using those that material to make up fictional stories. Paul calls them myths 
about the people found in those genealogies. Um, and then they were probably trying to convince Christians in Ephesus that their made-up apocryphal stories, if you will, had the same authority as Scripture itself. It was on a par with Scripture. And as I mentioned a few weeks back, when we were earlier in the chapter, um, a couple of weeks ago, to allow falsehood, even of a seemingly innocent variety, stories about some obscure name found in genealogy, but to allow falsehood to exist alongside of and indeed hold the same status in people's minds as God's actual truth, that does grave damage to the authority and the perceived value amongst God's people of the scriptures, which is the truth. And this is why Timothy says, go after them. Silence these guys. You see, the church in Paul and Timothy's day, and indeed in our day and throughout history, must not, must not tolerate false teaching of any kind within her midst. It must not be tolerated. Sad to say, in many uh, churches in our land, evangelical churches in our land, or ostensibly evangelical churches, um, doctrine is not important. Some churches pride themselves in saying that. We, we're, we, we love Jesus. We are not interested in doctrine. Um, that is an oxymoron, what I just said right there. You can't love Jesus without loving his truth and loving it, uh, understanding what that truth is properly. And so churches today are in the sad state of affairs they are in, many of them, precisely because they don't uh, address false teaching and, and silence it. It must be done uh, or the church will, uh, is liable to be destroyed from within by that false teaching eventually. So, Paul here, in his charge, in verse uh, 18, what he is doing, he's telling Timothy, it's your duty, son, as a pastor and as a Christian, to do battle with these opponents of God and his truth. You've got to do battle with them. That's part of my job description, and it's the part that I like least. I'm not a confronter. I like to get along with everybody. Most of you know that by now. Um, I don't like confronting people about anything for that matter, but particularly, well, anyway, uh, when it comes to certain matters. Um, but it's, it's the job description of a pastor, but not just the pastor. We're all, in some, to some degree, charged with the responsibility of doing what we can to protect God's truth and God's honor in that truth in our spheres of influence. That includes you and, obviously, um, the elders here and as well. So, Paul says, Timothy, you got to do this. And he describes this duty, this charge that he gives to Timothy, uh, and it's not a suggestion, it's a charge, as fighting the good fight. Timothy, you've got to fight the good fight. In other words, Timothy, you have to resolve that you are going to engage in this spiritual warfare that we're speaking of and not give up until you have won. Which may be never. Maybe an ongoing battle until Timothy went to glory. We don't know. But the point is, you've got to keep fighting. You can't just engage for a while and then go, oh, it's no use. This is your job description. You've got to do it. 
And yet he had to resolve to do it. To take the spiritual bull by the horns, if you will, and not let go. That was his duty. That's the duty of all uh, elders in Christ's church. Um, and uh, that's part of the fight that Paul has in mind when he tells Timothy to fight the good fight. And while Paul, in this charge to Timothy, he does have the false teachers mentioned earlier, uh, particularly in mind, and their false teaching, the good fight, again, that Timothy is required to engage in clearly isn't limited just to these particular spiritual opponents that Paul's been speaking of. Timothy is undoubtedly required also to do battle with any and all spiritual opponents, as are you and I, that we may encounter in this life. The immediate context speaks of Satan in verse 20. Uh, he is the truths and the, uh, the Lord's chief nemesis. And also the believer's chief nemesis is, is Satan himself. Timothy is undoubtedly uh, required to fight against the devil. Uh, and so because of the nearness to the command found in verse 18, Paul undoubtedly has that in mind, uh, spiritual uh, enemies such as Satan himself. Also, the fact that uh, this doesn't just apply to silencing the false teachers is evident from what Paul says in 2 Timothy, uh, another one of the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy 4, 7, which I'll read in a moment, but it indicates that the phrase, the good fight, um, that Paul uses here has broader implication here than merely those specifics, uh, specific false teachers in Ephesus. So let me read that, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7, where he uses the same expression. He says to, Paul, says to Timothy there, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought, what? The good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And then he goes on that glorious statement. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. But he says, I've fought the good fight. He's speaking here, same uh, language that he uses in first uh, in, our, in our verse, in uh, First uh, Timothy. He's speaking here of a broader fight than merely these specific men that uh, are damaging uh, or in danger of damaging uh, believers spiritually in Ephesus. And also, uh, Paul's command in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 3 through 5, further points to the fact that this spiritual warfare that Timothy and we are to engage in is broader than merely what uh, Paul addresses uh, specifically here. So I'll read that to you as well. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, a, a fairly familiar passage to some of you, I would imagine. He says there, verse 3, For though we walk, he's talking to all believers now, for though we walk in the flesh, um, but he's talking about, uh, well, okay, I'll just, I'll just read. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh. Excuse me, we do not war according to the flesh, rather. For the weapons of our warfare, and by the way, that word is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So notice he says... We, uh, we, walk, uh, we don't walk according to the flesh or war according to the flesh. 
And he's speaking of, uh, but, uh, but the weapons of our warfare are uh, divinely powerful. So that has broader meaning than what, what, uh, the way Paul uses the word with respect to the false teachers in Ephesus. My point is, like Timothy, you and I are required to do battle with any and all spiritual opponents that we may face, that we may encounter during our journey in this life, whether they come from, uh, whether they come at us from without, so that would be human enemies of the gospel and of Christ and perhaps of us, or and also demonic uh, um, personages that we can't see but are nonetheless out there and want our nothing but ill for us. Those would be external forces, and we're required to fight those forces, human and demonic. But we're also required to for, uh, fight forces that are coming at us from within ourselves, from from the old man within each one of us who are believers, ungodly desires, uh, attitudes, and um, uh, actions that we ourselves uh, are tempted to engage in or harbor uh, or feed. Those two are enemies of a sort. Uh, and we are to war against that enemy, the old man. And to um, we are required to fight hard against all these forces, as was Timothy, and not give up until we have beaten those forces back, as it were. Remember what uh, James says uh, in his epistle, resist the devil, resist, and what? He'll flee from you. We are to be resisting the devil. That applies to the devil. He also says in, uh, Paul says, rather in Galatians, he says, walk by the Spirit. And what? You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We are to not carry out those desires. We are to and do that by walking by the Spirit. Uh, and other uh, examples could be brought to bear as well from Scripture. But the point is, we're in a fight. Uh, Paul is speaking of this fight. Uh, it has specific application to Timothy, but beyond that to us and even to Timothy as well. So we're to fight. How are we to do this? Well, Paul speaks of two ways in which we are to do this in the passage that we're looking at. So look with me again. He says, This command I entrust you, trust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Those prophecies, by the way, probably had to do with the fact that he was being called specifically to uh, the gospel ministry there in Ephesus and the Spirit himself indicated through a prophet, a Christian, a New Testament prophet, that, that Timothy was, uh, was chosen by Christ to be an under-shepherd in his church in Ephesus. But at any rate, so... Uh, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. And here, these next two phrases, you could say, uh, and it could be translated, by keeping faith and by keeping a good conscience. That's the way you fight the good fight. By keeping faith and keeping good conscience. What does he mean by keeping faith? Well, here Paul seems to have in mind faith as a belief rather than the faith as a body of doctrinal truth. Sometimes the word uh, faith in the Bible is, speaks of a Christian doctrine, what we believe. what we believe. But more often, and here uh, almost certainly, the word is used to describe trusting. So uh, a Christian's act of trusting in God and trusting in his Word. So that's what's going on here. Uh, 
And so in order for Timothy to successfully deal with these false teachers and any other enemies he might encounter in Ephesus, he is going to have to trust God actively. And uh, a lot he's going to have to trust God. He's going to have to purpose in his heart to do this act of trusting. I'm going to trust you, Lord. Faith, folks, is a decision oftentimes. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. I am going to trust God. And you do it. Because you purposed to do it. And, uh, and that is how we got to do that, by the way. Much of the time when we're engaged in spiritual, uh, spiritual battle, I'm going to trust God for the strength to resist this temptation or the wisdom to get out of this situation or whatever it might be. But you've got to trust the Lord. Timothy had to trust the Lord. You and I have to trust the Lord in the midst of spiritual battle. With our enemies, demonic, human, uh, uh, evil desires within, whatever form they might take. Think of your area of besetting sin. I think we've all got at least one area. Think of your area of besetting sin, where you fought the sins that you tend to fall into. That's war. You're going to be tempted again to fall into that sin unless the Lord takes you in the next couple minutes. you got to do battle. What do you have to do in that battle? You have to say, God, help. I need your help. Would you please give me the wisdom I need to address this properly and to deal with this properly, this temptation? Or would you please give me the strength or the courage or whatever it is you need? I need it from you, Lord. Help me to trust you for it. Uh so that I can properly deal with this temptation, and that is flee from it. Think about that next time you're tempted in that area that you just thought of. We not only, uh, Timothy, and we not only have to fight the good fight by keeping faith, keeping our faith, trusting actively the Lord, but secondly, the, the text indicates that we also need to do this by keeping a good conscience. By keeping a good conscience. Keeping there, the word keeping modifies both uh, faith and the, the phrase good conscience. So you got to keep that as well. George Knight, uh, uh, who just recently went to be with the Lord, a great reformed uh, exegete, uh, he defined uh, a good conscience this way, and I like it. He said, it's a state in which one's self-evaluation accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. A state in which one's self-evaluation accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. I think it's an excellent way to put it. Folks, God calls upon you and me to fight our good fight, our, our good fight, by maintaining just such an evaluation of ourself. That as we look at ourselves, as we evaluate ourselves within us, we accurately register, I am obeying God right now. Sometimes, of course, uh, we can deceive ourselves into thinking something that is actually disobedient is obedient. That's 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 not a conscience functioning properly. But functioning properly is when it accurately assesses that I'm doing what pleases God right now. 
Luther once famously said, to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. He was spot on. It's neither right nor safe. You never violate your conscience. And yet, we do that when we choose to sin, don't we? Because our conscience says you're being disobedient right now, if it's working properly, when you're sinning. And that's not a good conscience when you're doing that. How important is it to you to maintain your good conscience? How important is that? Is it, is it, is it as important as it should be? Do you need to up your game a little bit? I hate to refer to it as a game, but that's all that came to mind. We need to maintain a good conscience. That's how we fight the good fight against our enemies. We say no to those enemies. We say, I'm not going to participate in whatever that enemy, within or without, wants us to participate in. No, not going to happen. By the grace of God, I'm not going there. I'm not borrowing your bad doctrine or believing your bad doctrine. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to follow you into that sinful practice that you want me to trying to lure me into. I'm not going to harbor those ungodly thoughts or those ungodly attitudes. It's important that you maintain a good conscience. It's very important, as you'll see here in the second point. It leads me to the second point, which is briefer than the first. And that is, so the first point is the importance of fighting the good fight. And the, the second point is the perils of not fighting this good fight. The perils, there are two that are mentioned in this text. But let me say before I get to them, so, so this is the perils of not waging a constant battle against those forces within and without that are foes of both Jesus and ourselves. And waging that battle by unceasingly trusting in God for whatever resources we need to resist those forces and also fighting to do our utmost to maintain a good conscience. It's not waging that fight, uh, that consistent fight. That's what it means to not fight the good fight. And what will happen, or may happen, I should say, are two things the text speaks of. The first is you may suffer shipwreck in regards to your faith. Now, I used to believe and think, uh, until I studied this passage further and uh, read some commentaries, but that this meant you lose your faith, which means you never really had it to begin with. It was a false faith. Because a Christian can't lose his uh, uh, genuine faith in Christ because that genuinely saves him and uh, genuinely uh, makes him right with God, and you can't undo that. Um, but um, I used to think it meant uh, apostatizing. And it may mean that. It can include that. It certainly does include that. But it can also, I think, as is evident from the context here and what what he says at the end of verse 20, it can also include uh, a a Christian who is is shipwrecked in his faith but hasn't ceased to be a Christian, perhaps, but has all but done so. So, but before I get... so, so So we may shipwreck... In regards to our faith, if uh, if we don't continue constantly do battle against 
forces arrayed against uh, Christ and ourselves. Such spiritual shipwreck is exactly what results when a professing Christian ceases to maintain, make the maintenance, rather, of a good conscience his or her top priority. See, there's a connection between not keeping a good conscience and uh, rejecting uh, a suffering shipwreck. Look at verse 19 again. So he says, um, back up to the latter part of verse 18, that, you, that by them um, you may fight the good fight by, and I'm inserting the word by there, but it's, it's implied in the Greek, by keeping faith and a good conscience, which, and, and uh, I'm going to key in on that word which, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. That phrase, which some have rejected, refers back to a good conscience, not to both the good conscience and uh, faith. It refers only to a good conscience because it's in the singular, it's not in the plural, in the Greek. And so he's referring back only to the conscience, and he's saying, which some have rejected, that good conscience, and thus have suffered shipwreck. The point is, it is the rejection of a good conscience that causes a Christian to become shipwrecked, spiritually. And the way that a believer repudiates a good conscience, or rejects it, is by choosing, and here it is, choosing to knowingly, deliberately, and repeatedly disobey one or more of God's commandments. to knowingly, deliberately, and repeatedly with the resulting impact it has on you spiritually disobeying one or more of God's commandments. That's how you shipwreck spiritually. You go, go, you go to a very bad place spiritually. A very, very dangerous place. Because you have begun to characteristically, by doing that, you, you are you are behaving like an unbelieving rebel. There's no difference in terms of your behavior between you and the unbeliever. You're looking like the unbeliever. For all intents and purposes, you are. You certainly have no right to believe you're a believer at that point in time. Calvin uh, spoke on this eloquently on this situation um, uh, of shipwreck. And speaking of the great danger uh, uh, for a Christian, a professing Christian to be in a situation of shipwreck, he says this, The metaphor of a shipwreck is very apt, for it suggests that if we wish to reach port, and following with the metaphor of, of being out on the sea, for it suggests that if we wish to reach port with our faith intact, we should make a good conscience the pilot of our course or otherwise there is danger of shipwreck. Faith may be sunk by a bad conscience as by a whirlpool in a stormy sea. Faith may be sunk, like completely destroyed, which means it was never there to begin with uh, in, a, in a saving way. But it might not be. But the point is, it'll, it'll, it, um, it, it's a very dangerous uh, uh, Thing to uh, to shipwreck spiritually, 
Which is why it is so exceedingly important, folks, that you strive and I strive to always maintain a good conscience. To not knowingly, deliberately, and let alone repeatedly disobey God in some area or areas of our life. We must strive to always maintain a good conscience which requires that we never violate our conscience. So let me ask you, in what situations, what circumstances are you most tempted to go against what your conscience is telling you? We all have situations where we're more vulnerable, right? What's yours? I would strongly suggest that you note that in your mind. Note this moment and go, next time I'm tempted in this area, whatever it is, I'm going to cry out to God, Lord, help me not to violate my conscience. Help me not to give in to this temptation because I know that it's wrong to do so. And this may be subtle stuff, folks. This might be gossip which isn't necessarily subtle, but a lot of people think it's a minor sin. This might be gluttony, which is a sin, which I commit all too often. Care to don't care to admit, but it's true. It could be subtle stuff, pride, critical spirit. So you may suffer shipwreck in regards to your faith if you don't uh, uh, constantly do battle with the forces within and without that are opposed to God and his truth in your life. But the second thing that might happen to you is if you are not fighting the good fight, if you uh, pause, if you will, in your fight, or worse, you may end up becoming an object of God's divine discipline. Which is normally supposed to manifest itself, that is divine discipline, God's discipline is supposed to manifest itself normally in the wayward Christian's life through the instrumentality of church discipline. It's Christ's church, he is God the Son, he normally uh, wishes to, and he, he always, I, should, I, I think I can safely say that, wishes for his divine discipline to be manifested through church discipline. This is what happened to, in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Um, again, it appears that they were leaders in the church. Second uh, Timothy chapter two verse eighteen seems to indicate that. Prior to the point where Paul regards them now as false teachers, but once he does, Paul, as Christ's apostle, delivers them over to Satan as an act of church discipline. Remember, he is. Part of the church. He's an officer in Christ's church in the first century. An office that we don't have anymore in the 21st century. But that was, a, was an operating uh, an active office in the first century, that of the apostle, of apostle. And so he, what he does, this delivering over to Satan, is almost certainly a reference to removing the person, or their, their, these two individuals, from the membership of the community of believers, that is to say, from the visible church where God's gracious presence and blessing are found. He says, you're out of here. You're no longer a member. Now, that doesn't involve you know, uh, violence or anything like that. But it's a spiritual act that as Christ's apostle, 
He, well, Christ does it through all, all, all the, all the church does is they announce what Christ has already done in heaven. You're out of my church. You're not, you're not in my church. When, when church discipline is properly done, that's exactly what it is. It's, uh, it's, we are echoing what has already been said by Christ in heaven if we're properly assessing a person's um, situation that they have truly are in rebellion, open rebellion against uh, against Christ. So these two men were, uh, by being handed over to Satan, were were removed from the church by Paul, and then spiritually, by removing them from the church where blessing God's blessing and presence are found, thrusting them into the realm that is controlled by the prince of this world, Satan. Let Satan eat you alive and see how that feels is essentially uh, what uh, what goes on. Uh, I'm not sure that was uh, Paul's attitude toward Hymenaeus and Alexander. That was probably a little much to say that. But the point was, you're not going to enjoy Satan, Satan's lordship. But that's where you're going. That's where you're going to be because you're obviously not recognizing Christ as your Lord. Uh, which all those who are savingly in Christ will have him as Lord as well. But notice this little phrase at the end of verse 20. Among these all, uh, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, meaning men who have, who have suffered shipwreck, whom I have delivered over to Satan, but then he says, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Little nugget of um, grace there. See what he's, that final clause indicates that his excommunication of these men is done by him and by Christ, ultimately, whom he's acting on behalf of, for the purpose of reclaiming Hymenaeus and Alexander, bringing them back into the church, uh, bringing them to their senses. So they go, what are we doing? You know, we've been put out of the church which means that Christ is angry at us and says, you're not mine. We've got to give up this, whatever, you know, the stuff that they were in, engaged in, this, uh, these myths and this uh, fascination with the genealogies found in the Mosaic Law and, and where, that, where that brought them. So normally, uh, God's discipline is manifested through church discipline. Uh, that's how he intends for it to be Manifested, I should say. Sadly, <clears throat> church discipline is is all too often neglected or non-existent in many evangelical churches in our land, including PCA churches. It's on the books, but it's not being used. Well, the faithful practice of church dis- discipline is essential to the well-being, not the being but the well-being of a congregation because we are all prone to wander spiritually. And sometimes we need to be spiritually slapped upside the head. And that's what the negative... By the way, church discipline has a, has a very positive component, which is teaching and instruction, which is what's going on right now. That's, that's also, this is also church discipline, what's going on right now. But that's the positive element of church discipline. But then there's the negative, the unpleasant, if you will, portion of it, which is the negative side of it, which is the uh, judicial um, side of, of, uh, of, of, of um, disciplining somebody uh, with, uh, 
negative consequences for their behavior. But my point is, it's essential because, folks, we're sheep. I am. You are. Sheep aren't the brightest creatures in the world. And sin makes us stupid, as I like to say. And we still sin as Christians. We still get stupid. And sometimes we need help getting unstupid. And that's what the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to step in and say, you're in sin, stop it right now. I'm not going to. I don't want to. Jesus loves me. I was converted back when I was seven. You're under discipline. Say what? We need that uh, cold water thrown in our face, if I can use another analogy, to wake us up to the danger that we have placed ourselves in by our, by our choices. And the church is the first line of, it's not defense, but offense, in some, I think I want to say, in, in bringing that about. Should be. Again, sadly, uh, much of the church ignores uh, church discipline. But, even if the church fails to do its job of disciplining um, uh, of disciplining an erring Christian, those who are in sin and unrepentantly in sin who are in the church, even if the church fails to discipline such individuals, the head of the church has no problem whatsoever disciplining his erring covenant people directly. I'll give you one illustration that you all know of, and that is think of the, Christi- of the Corinthians in who abused the Lord's Supper in Corinth. The church wasn't doing its job. The elders weren't doing their job. Everybody was engaging in all this ungodly behavior, including uh, uh, turning, the, turning the Lord's Supper into a, a debauched um, uh, you know, revelry. What happened? And he became sick and some died. The Lord took care of it. If you're not going to do your job, if you elders aren't going to do your job, I will. He says, if you will, uh, paraphrasing, uh, from the throne of, uh, of the church, the head of the church, as head of the church. You may become, a, one way or another, you may become an object of God's, Christ's divine discipline if you don't fight your enemies within and without, and that applies to me, you, all of us. We got to fight. It's a good fight. It's for our good. And even more importantly, it's for God's and Christ's glory that we fight. But there's great blessing when we do. We need grace to do it. We need help. We need to trust God. I need, I need help, Lord. But we got to do it. It's not an option for you or for me. If you're sitting there and you don't think any of this applies to you, you're wrong. It applies to you if you don't think, if you're in the church, you're in the church right now. If you're a member of a church, this or another, you're in covenant. You may not be converted if you don't think this applies to you. But you're in covenant. You're a covenant breaker. 
because you have not submitted to Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. And that's the only way you get him. That's the only way you get forgiven. That's the only way you get reconciled to God, is by trusting in Jesus alone as your Savior and Lord. You're a covenant breaker by not bowing the knee to him in faith. And you're on the road to hell. And you will surely get there. Unless God has mercy on you. You you better be afraid. God needs to put his fear into you so that you might say, this does apply to me. I have been living my life my way. I've been doing my thing. And somehow presumptuously thinking that God's going to be okay with that. He's not. Christians don't live for themselves. Now we do occasionally, of course, and that's a lifelong process of not doing that, and it never is fully done. But the point is, we have a new orientation as Christians. We have a new master. It's Christ. And he will be the master of those who are his, whom he forgives. And if he's not your master, he's not your savior either. And you're in trouble. Flee to Christ. Or beg God for the grace to understand that you need to flee to Christ so that you can. Because he's your only hope of suffering indescribably for all eternity for your rebellion against God himself. May God give you the grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We, it's sobering, Lord, to hear these things. Um, but it's, it's very important. Obviously, you wrote this uh, passage that we're looking at today, and uh, it's very important that we talk about it, at least periodically, because it comes up in your word um, with fair re- regularity. Would you please, Lord, work in each one of our lives in ways that we need help in? Lord, some of us are fighting the good fight diligently already, but we need perhaps greater courage to uh, uh, slay certain dragons in our life, if we can put it that way. Um, Would you please help those who are in need of greater strength, greater uh, perseverance, greater self-discipline. Lord, for those who are uh, coasting spiritually, aren't really fighting with uh, those opponents of yours that are in their their life, uh, opponents without, opponents within them, would you please give such individuals a sense of dread at their complacency, uh, what it's a sign of, and would you please Grant them holy fear of sin, of its consequences, and of you that would lead such a one to genuinely, biblically trust Christ as Savior and Lord so that he or she might fight the fight uh, as you command us to to fight it. And Lord, if there are any other needs that are uh, out there right now, any other situations that I haven't alluded to already, would you please... Meet those needs uh, that you might be honored in each one of us here. You are worthy of our, our utmost devotion and love and appropriate fighting. Help us, Lord. Help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. 
may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful as he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.